BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. As we wait for a resolution in the presidential race, we look at the balance of power taking shape in the House and Senate, as Democrats thus far have not managed to make the gains they'd hoped for. Then, California voters overwhelmingly supported Proposition 22, allowing companies like Uber and Lyft to be exempt from classifying their drivers as employees. We look at what drove Prop 22 to victory and how it could help gig companies remake labor laws throughout the country. Forum is next. Join us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. No matter who wins the election, it's looking more likely the next president will face a divided Congress, the House will remain in Democratic hands, and Republican senators like Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst in Iowa, and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina were able to beat back their well-funded Democratic challengers. For more on what this means, we're joined by Jennifer Habercorn, congressional reporter for the LA Times. Thanks so much for joining us, Jennifer Habercorn. Hi, Mina. Great to be with you. So tell us where the Senate map stands and what races have still not been called there. So we're sitting at exactly 48 to 48 in the Senate right now. We have two Republican, uh, two races outstanding in Alaska and North Carolina, which are expected to go Republican. So that would be 50 Republicans, 48 Democrats. And then we have two races in Georgia that are likely to go to runoffs. One is already there. And in the other, Republican Senator David Perdue is sitting at, I'm not joking, 49.99% of the vote. And if he stays under 50%, that will go to a runoff. Both of those runoffs would be in January. And literally, control of the Senate is at stake. Wow. And so that's really the best (laughs) that the Democrats can hope for, is that they win these runoff elections. And typically, do they tend to go Republican in Georgia? 
You know, I think that's going to be a really interesting question and one that's going to consume uh, everything uh, for the next 60 days, assuming we have an answer to the presidential soon. Um, Typically in special elections, Republicans are favored because their voters are considered to be more reliable to turn out. You know, traditionally their voters are senior citizens and people who pay slightly closer attention to these things. Um, And, you know, Republicans typically do well in races that aren't in a presidential contest. Um, I'm not sure if that conventional wisdom is going to apply because if literally control of the Senate is at stake, you can count on both parties to throw tons of money and attention on these two races. Um, And as we see in Georgia right now, um, the state is trending blue. Um, It's very, it's, you know, the presidential race has not been called. Um, So there's reason to think that the Democratic voters who are turning out um, for Vice President Biden today could be convinced to come out again for the Senate races. Um, So it's, uh, it would certainly be a very intense 60 days. And um, I mean, if you're selling airtime in Georgia Right now, you're bound to make a ton of money. (laughs) Well, let's say that if Biden wins the White House, what will have to change or what adjustments might need to be made with a Republican-controlled Senate led by Mitch McConnell? You know, I think it would completely change the way Democrats had hoped a Biden administration would start off. Um, It's been more than uh, 130 years since a Democratic president would start his presidency without Democratic control of Congress. Um, And so it's going to just immediately kind of cripple what he wants to do. You think about his cabinet appointments his, uh, you know, typically non-controversial appointments throughout the administration, those will all have to be approved by Mitch McConnell, because not only will Republicans have 50 votes or 51 votes, um, McConnell gets to control if a vote even comes up. So if he doesn't like a cabinet appointment, he can just say, we're not going to take it up here. And uh, then you get to legislation and the idea of Medicare for all, um, some of the aggressive climate change proposals, really any progressive policies can be considered off the table because they would have to get some Republican support. And again, McConnell would have to bring it up. So it would dramatically scale back the scope at which Biden would be able to pursue legislation. We're talking about the balance of power in Congress with Jennifer Habercorn, and you can weigh in on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email any thoughts or questions to forum at kqed.org. There has, you know, been conversation about the general, I mean, not healthy necessarily, but that there is a relationship between Biden and McConnell, that they've worked together for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And there's reason to think that, um, uh, they could strike some kind of cooperative compromise. Um, you know, McConnell will have uh, leverage and certainly there's things that he wants out of the Biden administration. So if they come to some kind of deal that McConnell is going to move nominees in exchange for something else, um, you know, we it's to be determined how much either of them is going to want to do that. And, you know, interestingly, in the early 2000s, at the beginning of the um, Bush administration, the Senate was divided literally 50-50. It only lasted for a couple months. But I was talking to the Republican leader at the time the other day, and he was telling me that, you know, because it was so closely divided, it kind of forced some cooperation. 
Mm. It's a little hard to see that happening now just because our politics is so divided. It feels so much more contentious than even 20 years ago. But, um, you know, if, if you want to have hope for compromise and bipartisanship, uh, that's what you can cling to. I was really struck by um, a stat in your recent piece that if Biden is elected and the Senate stays Republican, that he would be the first Democratic president since Grover Cleveland in 1885 mm -hmm. to begin his presidency without Democratic control of both chambers. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, let's move to the House. What kind of changes are we seeing there as Democrats are unlikely to add to their majority? Yeah, Democrats, um, you know, we're really talking a very big game that they were going to expand their majority um, in the, the House. Uh, I, I was on a call with uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Sherry Bustos, the head of the Democrat um, House campaign arm on Tuesday morning, the day of the election, and they were saying that they anticipated gaining, that they were going to push the Republican map even further. They were going to expand their majority. And um, at this point, uh, there's about 35 races that are still outstanding. So we don't know the final tally, but they are expected to keep the majority, um, but it's it's going to shrink. And, you know, we're seeing losses in parts of the country that President Trump won in 2016 and then flipped to House Democrats in 2018. Um, so clearly those places have flipped back. Um, and, uh, you know, the the result is going to be that Nancy Pelosi, assuming she re remains speaker, is going to have a smaller majority to work with. So she's going to have fewer, um, fewer Democrats to go to for votes. We might see some closer vote margins. And um, that could have consequences for what she wants to do. Yeah. Are you hearing any grumbling against Speaker Nancy Pelosi? No, it is a bit early. Um, I think House Democrats are in a bit of a state of shock right now. They are going to have a, a call in about an hour. Um, uh, presumably, this is a call where House Democrats um, are going to have an opportunity to express those frustrations. And like I said, there are about 35 races that are too close to call or that have not been called, about half of which are hovering right around 48, 49, 50 percent. So I think once we see that final tally and how, frankly, how bad it was for Democrats or how good it could end up being for Democrats, I think we're going to see more of that. The real the thing really in Pelosi's advantage right now is that there's not a, uh, a successor really waiting in the wings. Um, there's no one who has the political capital to mount a serious challenge. If there was someone waiting in the wings, you know, this would be um, the time to, to make that challenge. But I don't quite see it happening yet. And I mean, do they have a sense of what went wrong so far? I mean, you mentioned that Democrats are in a bit of shock uh, that they didn't have as many numbers as they thought they did, that the House, I mean, as of right now, safely, they're going to lose at least six, maybe seven seats and then potentially more. I mean, are they already doing some of that soul searching? They are. Um, I don't think they've come up with any uh, real conclusions yet. But if you just look at the map where Trump had his strongest margin in 2016 and then it flipped to a Democrat. You know, like there's a race, there's a, a district in the Oklahoma suburbs that went to Democrats in 2018 and they did not hang on to that seat. And you can say on the one hand, that's kind of expected. A Democrat in Oklahoma is a pretty rare unicorn to begin with. Um, that said, Democrats went into this election with such high expectations that they were going to be able to keep those seats. 
that you know this might be a game of uh, this might be an issue of setting expectations too high and then you know never being able to, to live up to them. Can you tell us a little bit about the Republicans who flipped Democratic seats? Uh, it sounds like they are adding some diversity to their ranks. You're right. Um, it was many women, uh, Republican women, who were able to flip the seats that have been called so far, um, particularly two races in Florida where um, Republican women ousted Democratic women. And um, this was a real issue for Republicans in 2018. Their ranks of women were just decimated in that election. They were down to 13 Republican women compared to 88 Democratic women. So Republicans really put a lot of effort in this cycle into uh, adding more Republican women to their ranks. And so far, that's proven successful. Um, you know, the the Republican caucus, if you look at a picture of them in the House, it's it's, you know, frankly, a lot of white men, and they realized that they had to do something about that. On the Democratic side, who are some of the, the new names that will also add some some diversity to the Democrats' ranks? Yeah, on the Democratic side, um, obviously there's not too many new members yet, but there are two, um, uh, two of the first um, Black, gay, uh, uh, openly gay men, uh, both from New York, um, and uh, adding to the ranks of the small number of LGBTQ membership in the Congress. Oh, right. They're replacing retiring Democrats. Well, Jennifer Habercorn, really appreciate having you on to just give us a sense of how things are shaking <laughs> out. It's certainly, yeah, I mean, ultimately, while there was so much activity, it sounds like ultimately things are kind of going to settle back to the way they were before this election with the Democrats yeah. in control. Yes, of the House and Republicans poised to maintain control of the Senate. And with the president, um, you know, as as it appears right now, flipping. So it's it's going to be a different dynamic. I think it'll feel different. But you're right on in Congress, it, it could end up remaining the same. And as you mentioned, the presidential race, we do have a quick update that Nevada officials were holding a press conference on latest vote count say they will not that they will have most mail-in ballots done by Saturday or Sunday, that they won't complete it until likely November 12th. So an update on that. Again, Jennifer Habercorn, congressional reporter for the LA Times. Thanks so much for coming on. We will be talking California next, Proposition 22 and its implications. So stay with us for that. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.